we are back for another week of gospel learning, a little bit of news, and a little bit of foolishness as well. Um, there is a decent amount to talk about today, but one thing we want to let you guys mm-hmm. know off the bat, that this week we're starting a thing where we're going to try to talk about uh, the Come Follow Me lesson for the following week, not the one tomorrow, if that makes sense. So right. for the last little while, we've been talking about the Come Follow Me lesson that we are supposed to be learning for this week. However, some, you know, a couple of you guys had talked about the desire for us to talk about the Come Follow Me lesson for the coming week so you guys could hear this episode in preparation for the coming week. And I guess that'll be especially helpful to some of you who are gospel doctrine or Sunday school teachers, whatever we call right. the teachers of the Come Follow Me now. So yeah. we're going to start doing that. Pro. So from now on, we are going to put it in the, in the notes what Come Follow Me lesson we're, we're on this week just to mm-hmm. avoid any and all confusion. But also just in general to let you know, we are going to be talking about not tomorrow's lesson, not the one we're supposed to be learning for tomorrow, but the one we're supposed to be learning for next Sunday. Right. Yes. Yes. That's the primary announcement I wanted to get out at the beginning of the episode. But for this week, um, you know, not a ton of things in terms of news, just a couple of things we want to talk about in general. And I, I don't know what we should start with, Derek. I told you where I wanted to have the reparations conversation, but um, there's a couple other things that have been happening this week. Uh, some issues at, at the border, uh, the trek we might want to talk about briefly since it's trek season. What, yeah. wh- where do where you want to go first, Derek? Well, let's just talk about trek. And I have to say as a convert, mm. um, I've been grafted into this pioneer narrative but those aren't my biological ancestors, and um, I've never experienced Trek myself. I've just read about it online and from other people who've gone through it. And one of the things I wanted to bring up is, one, this, I, I, uh, this idea of romanticizing a particular time in our narrative back when um, people of color and uh other minorities, including LGBTs, did not have even the few rights that we have today. So, like, magnifying and idealizing this time is like, well, what does that say about what you want to be made great again, if I should, if I could say <laughs> it that way? Like, what are we trying to bring back? And the other thing is um, this, narr- this brings out the experience of one particular uh group of pioneers Mm -hmm. but it leaves out um all of our pioneers in latin america asia or africa in our church who have their own pioneer narratives of how their people or their ancestors or they themselves came to this church and went through whatever they went through like why do we glorify this particular narrative and center who uh, a group of mostly white people um and then not and not realize, oh, we've got all these other treasures that we need to center as well. Yes. And further, like, just to be clear, it's not to say that uh, people of color are excluded from Trek, but they are just more or less conforming to the standard narrative of white Mormon pioneers. So basically you have little black girls out there wearing pioneer bonnets and pushing handcarts as if they were, as if that's what they were doing <laughs> at that particular time. Like, I know exactly where I would have been during that time, but they'd be having me 
dressed like all the other kids, pushing all the other hand carts like I was just one of the Mormon pioneers trekking across. And that's not really a great message we want to mm-hmm. send to the children as if to say, hey, if you were alive during this time, this is exactly what you would be doing when that's not really the case. Right. Yeah. And the other thing is, I wish we had some other narratives. Like, why can't we reenact the time where we marched with Dr. King and Zelma like many of the other well, and the reason we can't is because we didn't. We weren't there. We no. weren't there. We should have been there. Other religions were there. Yeah. Um, other, other historically white clergy were there and mm-hmm. and uh, members. And like, we should have been there. If we are the light to the world and we are led by a living prophet, we need to be ahead of our culture and not behind it. And we should have been there. And I would be more proud about celebrating something in our past where we stuck up for someone or we defended someone and we, you know, changed the course of history. Um, and, uh, cause there's, there's, uh, yeah. I mean, that's what, what, that's what I would be proud of celebrating is if mm. we had done something like that. Um, that I, I know how a lot of my Jewish friends celebrate thousands and thousands of years of tradition of being, People devoted to justice, devoted towards um, equality, devoted towards making a difference, devoted towards changing the world. Um, I've heard that most of the, a lo- like maybe a third of the white people that were involved in the civil rights movement were Jewish. I'm like, why? Why can't? Where were the Mormons? I can't even think of one. Mm. Uh, and the history of Jews well, in America is like, yeah. I mean, they have. We know they have a history, but yeah. like their greatest oppression happened thousands of years ago, whereas Mormons as a people, their greatest oppression was still fresh. Or, you know, it was fresher. Right. So well, if I anybody mean, had reason. Uh, up until the, obviously, until the Nazis. We've, yeah, until the we've, Holocaust and um, stuff. And even until today, there's significant mm-hmm. anti-Semitism. That has not gone away. Yeah, you're totally right about that. That's my bad. Um, but... But yeah, there's there's a there's a long tradition of social justice that that's rooted in the scriptures, and that's where I'm like these are we these are our scriptures too. Yeah, um, we have a different claim to them, obviously, and a different connection. But look, we've got a claim to be a light to the nations, and not uh, and not the tail light to the nations. Not the tail light to the nations. <laughs> right? Isn't that what Dr. <laughs> King said? The church needs to be the headlight and yeah. not the tail light of society well i don't remember whose quote that was i've heard it before okay cool but anyway so that's all i wanted to say about trek all right cool man uh there's this other thing that's been this issue at the border has been resurging and particularly i've been seeing uh, the church's statement just about this time last year on immigration policies resurface and i believe this is as a result of uh claims and other Things said by the likes of AOC, Ilan Omar, people who have likened the present state of these detention camps for children and mi- other migrants to concentration camps. I believe that's why this whole issue of issues of the, at the border is resurfacing. Do I understand that correctly? Yeah, I think so. And I think this there's people who uh, aren't familiar with the vast scope of things narrow the meaning of concentration camp to just a very particular thing that the Nazis did. Yeah. And they weren't they do they did not have a monopoly on concentration camps. Mm. And so we have to take that into account when we talk about well what did we do to the Japanese? What did we do to Native Americans? 
What did we do to uh, people? What are we doing now to our people who want to come to our southern border, which are really doing nothing different than what my ancestors did when they came from Europe in the 19th century who were looking for a better place to live? It just yeah. so happens that America's borders were much more open, mm-hmm. and there was a— you could basically just come here. Yeah, right? as long as you, you didn't, didn't have a disease. Yeah, like you could you know, just people could and just you were saying you could just go. You yeah, you could and just come. So in. There, it, there, they really didn't even have illegal immigration back then. It was yeah. just, they didn't have it. If I understand it right, they didn't have it systematized the way they do now. So it's unfair to compare them with my ancestors who came here in the 19th century. Yeah, from Europe, and say, look. You know, we came legally, so why can't you? And That's because another there's, thing. Because yeah. there's no path. There's literally no path for many of our friends um, in Latin America to come to this country legally unless they either marry someone or are sponsored by a job. If you do not fall in either of those categories, mm-hmm. there's no back of the line to get into. Right, right. And there is no other option. And they would do this. Uh, we would do the same things. If, if our families needed to go somewhere, we would go. Mm-hmm. Um, and so and the I, scriptures are wrote with those examples, oh yes, like yes. so many examples of like Exodus refugee narratives, like yes, yes. so many of those. Mm-hmm. We love to quote those stories, mm-hmm. both in the Bible and the Book of Mormon. And uh, and I just we have to figure out some something else. This is not at all uh, good. What's what's real? I, oh, I don't know what to say. I'm just so frustrated. <laughs> but I get it, man. But yeah, there's we're going to be uh, the other thing that's really important. If you look, especially at the Hebrew prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah and all the prophets of the Book of Mormon, they say that entire nations will be judged and in fact punished based on how, how they, they treat, treat people. It. Yes. How they treat their poor, how they treat mm-hmm. the stranger. So people are this, that this like really radical extreme individualism like, oh, I just need to take care of myself and my family. Like, I can do whatever I want. I don't have to contribute. Like, we as a people, as a nation, we don't have to provide for our poor. It's private charity. Like, no. We as a nation will stand or fall mm-hmm. based on who are the who are the least advantaged among us and how, mm-hmm. we're, how we treat them. I mean, that's what a Zion community is. Mm. Um, and I think there's a, a very di- big discrepancy between the community of Zion who— was just and so just that they were taken up into heaven and then the community of Sodom who mistreated outsiders to the point where they got destroyed yeah. like we have a choice do we w- which one do we want to be like mm-hmm. and the narrative of Sodom of course is used against my people so much but that's not even what it's about no it's not so not what it's about at all that's kind of all I wanted to say other than we need to stay oh yeah here's this other point that other people have made is well you shouldn't compare what's going on here to the Holocaust because that's disrespectful of the memory of the, like, no, the thing that's most respectful of their memory is making sure it never happens again. Correct. Right. And even though it's not the same, it's not the same. That's, that doesn't matter because the whole point of never again, um, you know, if, if, if we, if we abandon and prohibit all possible analogies or comparisons to the Holocaust, Never again doesn't mean anything anymore. Correct. So yes, the best way um, is to uh, to figure out like learning our lessons because the thing is, you know, concentration camps in in Germany started in 1933. The death camps didn't start till 1941. They we could have done something. Mm -hmm. 
when we could have done something, right? So it's it's we're, we shouldn't wait until it gets as bad as it could before we stop, <laughs> right? Yeah. And so I'm saying we need to stop this now before it gets any worse. And mm-hmm. I don't know how to stop that, but we need to we need to at least name that there's a problem. I think that's that's a big thing. There's some people that won't even name that there's a problem. Yeah. Yeah, and that's that's an issue. We got to notice these patterns. Like even though we don't want to directly call this what it is or say it's a concentration camp, there are particular patterns that we have to notice in order to be like never again. This is I mean, there are striking and stark similarities that we can't ignore. And just because it's not exactly like the Holocaust of Nazi Germany doesn't mean that we can't nip Mm -hmm. this in the bud right now. Like you said, we could have done something 1933 to 1941, and we didn't. So we are are trying to take an opportunity, and this is the primary reason I believe people are calling this situation concentration camps, is because we are observing patterns and methods of treatment and conditions at these internment camps and we're just like, we need to nip this in the bud. We need to stop this right yeah. now. This is what we're doing. We need to be hung up less on the language with which mm-hmm. we address this problem than the actual problem itself. Yeah, and I think the, the, the real root of this is this is racism, and we should name that too because there's this assumption that the people coming across the border are undesirable. I mean, what, what's undesirable about them? They want to come. They want to live. They want to um, – survive they want to get jobs here in this country they want to be productive uh members of our culture or society they want to bring us i hate to reduce it to like amazing foods but Mm. they that's that's at least one thing that should clue in our our you know we have an interest in this too of having a melting pot of people in this country and there's people are like no they're just afraid that of i don't know what they're afraid of (laughs) uh anyway I mean, I know un- undocumented immigrants, and all of them are cool. I have no yeah. problem with any of them here in this country. Um, so I don't know what people find so undesirable about them. Yeah, that's... You're, Other you're than right. that they're brown. Yeah, you're right that we need to name that. There are people here from Britain and other European countries that have overstayed their visas, and people are not taking issue with that. There's nowhere yeah. near the amount of enforcement against immigrants that are pale-skinned when compared to immigrants that are dark skinned. And that is something we need to be ready to acknowledge. Yeah. Let's go ahead. If you don't have anything else on that, I would really love to move on to the reparations conversation. Yeah, let's just talk, mention Juneteenth. Oh, yes, uh, Juneteenth. Yes. So I went to the. That was Wednesday, by the way. Yes, June Wednesday. 19th, this past Wednesday. Yes. I went to the National. Center for Afro-American Art in Roxbury, where they had a black-led, um, completely black-led production, and it was really cool. There, there was uh, there were some speeches, some songs, some. Uh, they read the Emancipation Proclamation. They read the uh, Juneteenth Proclamation from 1865 when General Granger. Uh, re- uh, went into Galveston with his um, proclamation that the that all enslaved people were emancipated. Um, they also read the Thirteenth Amendment, uh, and it was just a really interesting thing. And of course, I was crashing the party, um, but and I it was good to see other people celebrating something, and uh, and yeah, it was good to be there. Good to listen to others. Good to see a sense of 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 where we could have been 
yeah. uh, and where we are now. And I'm like, if we had continued this trajectory of justice, um, even just starting with doing the right thing in 1865, mm-hmm. we wouldn't be where we are now if we had actually uh, done what we, we should have done. Yeah, with the Emancipation Proclamation. Yes. Yeah. Because even after that was signed, I mean, that didn't stop Jim Crow segregation from coming in. That didn't stop the black codes. That didn't stop redlining. Just all kinds of things. I mean, that didn't stop the 13th Amendment. So all kinds of things that the Emancipation Proclamation in spirit was supposed to grant black people did not, in fact, take effect. Yeah. And here's the other thing. So I'm from the South as well. Um, And a lot of people think the South lost the war. Like, on paper they did, but in terms of effect and culture, the South, I I hate to say it, on many levels won. Mm. Because almost everything that the Reconstruction did, the South was able to undo and just do it in a different way Mm -hmm. and just reinscribe all of of these things for a, for over a hundred years mm. from the 1860s to the to the 1960s or any up to today yeah it's now taking on a different form that's why mm-hmm. we've got this concept of a new jim crow yes and uh primarily referring to things like mass incarceration right, and the, right. okay and l- like i said last time oppression is adaptive and mm. it mutates and it and it, it, it'll it'll squirm to fit the new constraints like mm-hmm. if you attack it here it will wriggle out and find a new way of of uh and that, that's really what jim crow was all about yeah and so we have to be mindful that it's like that whack-a-mole game you have to be ahead of the the you know what i'm talking about <laughs> i'm not that young derek i know whack-a-mole. <laughs> okay i know exactly what whack-a-mole is but you have to like the problem will come up and you have to be ready to, to hit it the next spot. And that's mm-hmm. where we, uh, especially as white Americans, have not been good. We've been proud about, yay, we got rid of slavery. But we haven't really gotten rid of slavery in, mm-hmm. on many levels, right? There's there's just new we ways. We haven't of, gotten rid of white supremacy. Like and we, we have Yes, and we have not get, gotten rid of white supremacy, um, the root of all, you know, of, all yeah. of these things. And so that's that's could go into into our conversation about reparations. Yes. Now, um, something else that happened on June 19th that I thought was extremely poetic. I don't know if they did this on purpose, but on June 19th, on Juneteenth, uh, this past Wednesday, the House Judiciary Committee's subcommittee on the Constitution, Civil Rights, and Civil Liberties held a hearing about H.R. 40, which is a proposal from Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee from Texas, Derrick's home state, that would authorize a national apology and study reparations for slavery and racial discrimination against black people in America. Now, among those people who were present at this particular hearing, uh, Danny Glover was there. Ta-Nehisi Coates was also there. Yeah, I read his speech. Okay, you read the speech. parts of his speech. Okay. Now, for those of you who don't know, Ta-Nehisi Coates is a writer, and he has pretty much been deemed one of the most seminal voices on uh, racial relations in America. In fact, the primary reason he's at this committee meeting is because he, his seminal piece, what I consider his magnum opus to this day, is an essay called The Case for Reparations that was published in The Atlantic a few years ago. And that is often thought to be the spark of the whole conversation and debate surrounding reparations. So ta Coates was present at this hearing to, in essence, make another case for reparations. The most quoted piece of 
uh, Coates' testimony was a direct response to remarks made by Mitch McConnell. Um, Mitch McConnell said something that is very familiar, something that I have heard many times growing up, any time the subject of racism has been brought up. Um, I'll just find the assertion here. Mitch McConnell's assertion, and many white people's, is the assertion that uh, reparations don't make sense since no one alive is responsible for something that happened 150 years ago. Now, this is the response to not just reparations, but any efforts to set right the statistically indisputable racial inequalities that exist in our country, or to any assertion that white people alive today benefit from or are complicit in systems that give them advantages at the expense of people of color. And Coates even directly acknowledged this sentiment as a familiar reply. Uh, Coates, though, was not having it, and he lit these people up. And I just want to read from, I just want to read uh, what he had to say briefly. And I think this is the same section that you, I, I'm sure you've read the whole testimony, but there's a frequently quoted section from Coates' testimony that has been circulating social media that I really enjoyed and really comes for people who embrace this argument. So he says, this idea proffers a strange theory of governance that American accounts are somehow bound by the lifetime of its generation. Many of us would love to be taxed for things we are solely and individually responsible for. I just want to stop there for a second. Something I like about this idea of only be being taxed what I'm responsible for. I, as an American, I don't have any kids. I'm single. I'm not married or whatever. But my taxes still go to supporting institutions that I have nothing to do with, directly anyway, like the public education system. I have no kids, but my money goes to those schools. You know what I'm saying? Well, let me just pause right there and say, in fact, you do benefit. We all benefit from public education because okay. those people are going to go out and vote. And they need to have an understanding of science and civics mm -hmm. and or else they're going to vote in. Well, let's not even say who they're going to vote in. But my point <laughs> is we would benefit from and we all benefit from because when our people are educated, we've got better jobs. Mm -hmm. We've got less crime we, like mine. You know, all these things happen mm -hmm. when people are better educated, when they're well fed, when they have stable homes. Mm -hmm. We the, everyone benefits. Everyone benefits. Yes, you're totally right. And that like totally pokes a hole in just how terrible this argument really is that right. we should only be paying taxes to stuff that we feel like we are directly involved in like really america we acknowledge and this is why we have these taxes the power of pouring in to an economy and to a system mm -hmm. that benefits ultimately all of us even though right. we may not directly be involved we are all directly affected in some way so uh coates goes on to say um we are American citizens and thus bound to a collective enterprise that extends beyond our individual and personal reach. This was the point you just made, Derek. Coach reasoned that it was uh, impossible to imagine America without the inheritance of slavery. And then he goes on to break down the, uh, the social, political, and economic legacy of America's government-sanctioned institution. But one part of his Holy Ghost-inducing clapback was <laughs> directly from McConnell's throat. Because McConnell said, I wasn't alive. Many of us weren't alive for a lot of these things that happened. But uh, he, he went on to say, it's tempting to divorce this modern campaign of terror, of plunder from enslavement. But the logic of enslavement, the logic of white supremacy respects no such borders. And the guard of bondage was lustful and begat many heirs. 
coup d'etats and convict leasing, vagrancy laws and debt peonage, redlining and racist GI bills, poll taxes and state-sponsored terrorism. We grant that Mr. McConnell was not alive for a pomatox, but he was alive for the electrocution of George Stinney. He was alive for the blinding of Isaac Woodard. He was alive to witness kleptocracy in his native Alabama and a regime premised on electoral theft. Majority Leader McConnell cited civil rights legislation on Tuesday, as well as he should because he was alive to witness the harassment, jailing, and betrayal of those responsible for that legislation by a government sworn to protect them. He was alive for the redlining of Chicago and the looting of black homeowners of some $4 billion. Victims of that plunder are very much alive today. And then he concludes with, I'm sure that these people would love to have a word with Mitch McConnell. So, like, Coates didn't come to play any games. And I really respected that not only did he have something to say about the institution of slavery in general, but he had something directly to say to someone like McConnell, who would dare say that he wasn't alive for a lot of these things that affected black people. He wasn't alive for slavery, but he was alive for so many of the issues that have plagued black commu- bla- that have plagued black communities and still plague us to this day. So this idea that we, as a people, that the entirety of American culture is not responsible to fix this particular issue and to have restorative justice towards the black community is totally bogus. And this is all on the premise that you weren't alive during any of it. Yeah, I think I think most white people probably uh, misunderstand the whole point of reparations. They think it's like, oh, we're going to even the score and pay a debt that was created 150 years ago. And to me, that's not what we're doing because it's not because you can't pay back the people that you know you you know the people who created the debt and the people who are owed are on that level aren't alive anymore but what happens is the continuing effects where wealth and and privilege and education are all hereditary mm. and all of these people and culture is hereditary too so all of these yeah. problems that got set up because of this grave injustice have perpetuated themselves so that one group of people has an advantage today and uh, another has a disadvantage. And so for me, the point of reparations isn't to, to settle the score because technically to settle the score, you would have to make it completely even, you would have to enslave white people for mm-hmm. centuries to balance it out. And that's not what we're talking about. That's not what we want. What, what, we, what I'm concerned about is people who are alive today being in right relationship to each other. And I think mm-hmm. that's what reparations is about. Absolutely. And I think we shouldn't do it because white people would benefit. We should do it because it's right. But I think white people would benefit Absolutely. from from, Absolutely. from taking this. It's an investment. Yes. It's an investment in the well-being of our country. We will have mm-hmm. you know, um, a better e- economy, better jobs, better education, um, you know, less problems. Like everything all around will be so much better. There's no loss here to be yes, taken from reparations. Right. And I don't think reparations is taking it from white people. Right. What it is is it's taking tax money that we all of all races pay mm-hmm. into. Like we spend billions and billions of dollars on our defense budget, which isn't really about defense, it's about going in around the world and like why do we like just for one year take that budget and put it into reparations? Like we wouldn't have any higher taxes and we would benefit from we would all benefit I mean, like yeah, I just don't understand why people are against this, uh, against reparations. It makes to- so much sense. It makes I a mean, lot of sense. They're willing to waste billion, literally trillions and 
billions, I don't even know how much, on our military and not and not look at this, which actually would fix it. – w- it wouldn't fix everything. I mean, but it's a, it's a step. Yeah, right? it's a step. It's a step. It's a, it's a particular solution to a particular thing. And, um, yeah, I, I really think – you know, I think someone who's infused with the Bible would be on the side of reparations, just like we talked a few weeks ago mm-hmm. with Zacchaeus mm. and how he would repay fourfold what he – he took and you know the um the enslaved israelites when they left egypt they plundered egypt of their of their valuables and Mm -hmm. so there's a sense in which they got reparations Mm. and just and what it's really about is restorative justice as you said putting people who are alive today in right relationship with one another and that's to me what reparations is it's not punitive it's not yeah. primarily punitive. It's all about setting right what has been taken. And let's mm-hmm. just talk about that for a moment. Like in criminal law, people convicted of theft and people who receive stolen property, sorry, property, are ordered to pay back what was stolen. In civil law, when a man is wrongfully incarcerated, he is compensated. In defamation law, when someone is defamed, they receive compensation. In employment law, when someone is underpaid, they are entitled to back wages. Every single aspect of law justice and fairness demands that Americans pay reparations for the wages, wealth, dignity, and lives that it has taken over the last 400 years. It makes perfect sense. But the only reason that is not happening is that the people that are making the decisions are the thieves. Yeah. Yeah. They're the ones who are making the decisions. And the reason that I would suspect that they don't want to make that decision is perhaps a fear of loss of power like that has always been a thing why people at least according to Pew are far more likely to view uh, race issues as a zero-sum game than just about anybody else but that is really what it's that's really what's happening Mm -hmm. right now we are not experiencing justice because the people who have you know committed the crimes are the people who are in power and that is more evidence that is more evidence to me than anything else that white people in power know what's up in terms of them benefiting from the institution of slavery mm-hmm. and its legacy yeah and i have to name that uh, that i as a as a white person i to this day uh, have to admit that i benefit from the legacy of slavery even the fact that we're friends mm-hmm. as much as i like that we wouldn't be friends if your ancestors weren't brought to this country by people who looked like me. Mm-hmm. And so even just that, I, I benefit to this day from slavery. And it's hard to say that, but I have to say that. And there's just so many mm-hmm. ways that we, this is so entangled. You know, racism is the, is the foundation of the way America was uh, established. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and, and we have to name that. And I don't know all the details of how to fix that. But at least we can name the problem and, Absolutely. and get to work. Absolutely. I think that's a good segue into, you know, what this would have to do with what this would have to do with the church. Because we briefly oh, yeah. brought this up about how, um, you know, the church should have been the church should have had other narratives to be proud of, other legacies to be proud of. But we don't right. um, because the church for 126 years did not allow 
black people in particular, people of African descent, to hold the priesthood, to go into the temple, Mm -hmm. and to otherwise come into full fellowship in the church, thereby not enjoying the full blessings of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ in this life. And that needs to be... That needs to be acknowledged. Um, I think if the church owes black people anything, it's the opportunity to make up for lost time. And there are several ways, there are several ways we could do that. But I think often about how different the church might have looked if black people were allowed in temples, allowed the priesthood, were allowed leadership roles. And in a uniquely American church, we should at least have more black men in the upper echelons of church leadership. Mm-hmm. But we just got one mere months ago. Like, whenever conference was, April, so three, four months ago, Mm -hmm. however long ago that was. Now, I'm not saying that we just start calling black men to leadership roles out of nowhere, but 126 years of the spiritual dispossession of my people demands a restitution that makes our spiritual needs a higher priority. And that is the spirit of what I want. I I think often about this story that a friend of mine told uh, some time ago. She was visiting a predominantly black ward. I think it was in Washington, D.C., This was during the same week. This was the week following the killing of uh, Philando Castile and Alton Sterling. Now that following Sunday, a lot of saints, a lot of the black saints in this particular congregation were in mourning. You know, they were comforting each other. They were really hurting because of these deaths of these two unarmed black men. At the conclusion of this particular sacrament meeting, near the conclusion of this sacrament meeting, a counselor got up and said that the bishop would like to take time to share a couple of things. Uh, with the congregation before we close and there was an audible gasp in that um, in that congregation many were hoping 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 that the bishop would say something about these killings and about the pain that the black saints were experiencing again this is a majority black congregation but this bishop is white and everybody in this um, bishopric is white so when he finally got up to uh, address the saints in his congregation he began with the words i want to talk about a trip that me and my family took to idaho you know it's moments like that that really just drive home the point to many black saints that we're invisible that people aren't prioritizing our spiritual needs that people are not seeing the unique challenges we face as black americans and as black people in a uniquely american church So anyway, what this looks like to me is more black people in leadership roles, better training at the MTC for those called to serve in black communities, especially black American communities, and more transparency about the church's history, including an acknowledgement of all facts surrounding the priesthood ban and its implications. I think think an example of that would be a simple acknowledgement that we don't have any written revelations. And this is important considering how meticulous the church is about record keeping. We don't have any written revelations about the, um, the institution of the priesthood ban. And I would really like the church to acknowledge that and the implications of that. If we don't have any record of, an, of a revolution, a revelation instituting the ban of the priesthood, then we have to be, we have to acknowledge and be willing to say, we don't seem to have a good reason for this. And perhaps apologize for that, because that would mean that these 126 years of spiritual dispossession of black saints is based on nothing more than racism. How, how would you feel about integrating the stories of black pioneers into the curriculum that everyone gets? I would like, love that. Uh, like we need to hear about Jane Manning James. Absolutely. And, and Elijah Abel and, and you know, Darius if, Gray. Absolutely. 
like now, everyone needs to hear those stories. They need to hear those stories. But the thing is, if you if they, if people know anything about black pioneers, they only know about Elijah Abel. They only know about Jane Manning James. Like we have the most information about those two. But what about the Green Flakes? What yeah. about the Darius Grays? Yeah. What about you know just there are so many other people that we need to talk about and so many other narratives that need to be included in the story of black pioneers, not mm-hmm. just in the early days of mm-hmm. the church, but as recent as the 70s, as recent as yep. now. There are there are history making moments happening right now in the black LDS community in the church. And I want more attention given to that. And I just want to say something about this idea of an apology. Okay. And obviously I would like to hear an apology from the church too, um, for racism, for the priesthood and temple ban and for ongoing racism. But for, for my view, the point of an analogy isn't to, to like make it all better like it never happened. The point of an, an apology. Uh, uh, yeah, an apology. Okay, my bad. The, uh, the point of an apology, one main point of an apology is to, to, one, dignify the person. Yeah. Like, to say, look, I, I realize that you are human and, I, and I'm going to at least treat you like a full human by, by, by saying, look, what I did was wrong. To, to just say, whoops, I'm, I'm now doing the right thing. Let's forget what I did that was wrong. That's not, that's not treating someone as it's an not. equal. It's it, not. It's like re- realizing and saying, look, I need to acknowledge that I have created this pain in you and what I did was wrong. That, one, dignifying the person. And two, to, to actually break down and say we got this wrong and here's how we got it wrong will lead to not doing similar things again. And I think that's the biggest part of an an apology because a lot of people are still teaching all these outdated things. Yeah. Uh and I and they and they they get they prop they get propagated like weeds and you can't stomp them all and I think an apology saying, look, this is what we got wrong. This is why we got wrong. This is the the arrogance or assumptions or the the this is what what, what went wrong as to how we got it wrong. That will prevent, help prevent us from making similar mistakes, which I think we are making with other populations, mm-hmm. uh, from happening. Yeah, absolutely. Right? There's this confidence in our leaders like, oh, they speak directly to God and everything they do is right and mm-hmm. we should never criticize them. And they should. I think a very well-worded apology would completely fix that idolatrous narrative. I hope so. Like, yeah. I, w- I would really like to see that happen. Like, it would be a healing balm for a lot of the black saints. And if I could just tell you, when that fake apology by Josh Streeter came out, um, I guess it was just last year, like, so many of my black brothers and sisters in the church were experiencing healing, you know? And it really broke us when we found out that that whole thing was fake. It was just, it, it really spoke to me how powerful an apology would be because none of them were like gotcha or I told you so when that apology came out they were all just rejoicing in the opportunity to offer real forgiveness you know what I'm saying because real forgiveness is not going to be able to take place you know and and you know real restorative justice isn't going to be able to take place without that opportunity for reconciliation and it Mm -hmm. felt like we were getting that opportunity we didn't yeah but you know is what it is. We're we're here now, and an acknowledgement of that would be great. Primarily because they didn't do us any favors. You know, they actually they they set us back. We've they made years of 
they've made this a harder place for us to exist. And it's not just 126 years of discriminatory policy. We deserve the fullness of the restored gospel. We deserve to feel Mm -hmm. at home in it. We deserve to be ministered to in ways that speak to our unique experience as African-Americans or anyone else in the African diaspora. Because if we know nothing else about Christ, we, you know, we, we know that he spent the majority of his time in the margins because that is the people who are most in need. Right. And I want to see the church take that same approach now by prioritizing folks on the margins. Mm-hmm. And in this particular mm-hmm. case, uh, black people who have been dispossessed. Yeah. And now the story of LGBTs is different. And I want to acknowledge that. But yes, there's sir. a similar thing in that uh, we are also seen as disposable. I know people who refuse to share the gospel with LGBTs because... They think, oh, well, they're, they're not going to receive it anyway. Or I'm afraid to talk to them because it might corrupt my own theology by, by encountering. Like, if I may add, Derek, just yeah. another reason. Like, I've been guilty of this at times, of like being afraid to talk to members of the queer community simply because if I don't feel like they have a space here or if I don't feel like they have a place here that is immediately hospitable, then it's going to be hard for me to talk about the gospel to them. Just wanted to let you know, I've been guilty of that myself. Oh. Well, the two things I would say to that is, one, you can uplift people where they are because the gospel can help people. They can still Even help, if they're yes. not members of the church yet. Mm-hmm. St- we, ju- we want to bring Christ to people, and we want to bring hope and freedom. We want to have um, you know, faith and believing and belonging and, and becoming. Um, and that we can still give everyone, whether or mm-hmm. not they're members of this church. We can serve. We're, in, we're like Christ. We're in a place of service. Correct. And the second thing is, what you can do is em- empower them. Mm-hmm. You can put everything on the table and say, this is what we have. Mm-hmm. And just knowing more information and having more options, to including the option of joining the church, yes. empowers my people. Mm-hmm. They, may not, they may not take you up on that, but at least giving more options and having more information on the mm-hmm. table makes everyone more empowered because now we have the agency and the responsibility um, and the ability to to take control of our lives because the more information we have, the more choices we have, mm. the more power we have. Yes. And so you're actually empowering people when you share them the gospel, um, even though uh, there are some people who think that there's no place, you know, it's not safe yet for LGBTs. I mean that not in the way that it's safe for me as a straight man. Yeah, and that's what I mean when I say that. And and to some extent, that's true, but it still is up to us to decide whether we're going. Now I'm a convert. I joined the church knowing what I was facing and knowing that the Lord had my back. And I'm like, I am not afraid. And Mm -hmm. there's there's going to be LGBTs who join the church, and there's going to be some who don't. Yeah, but it's not up to you. It's like Jonah. Jonah Mm -hmm. was like, I don't want the Ninevites. To, to taste salvation. I'm stingy, and I want salvation just to myself, and I don't think they need it or want it or deserve it. So I am, I'm not going to – no. You need to be not like Jonah mm-hmm. and, and share the gospel with everyone because mm-hmm. everyone um, has a, a right to, to hear the message Absolutely. and a right to, to decide whether or not they want to accept that message. Mm-hmm. It's not just about – it's not just about quote unquote converting people. It's, yeah. That's not why we do this. That is not why we share the gospel. It's not for the primary purpose of getting people baptized. That's not what right. it's all about. You said it was about service. It was about yeah. giving people opportunities and options and information. Mm-hmm. Respect people enough to give them the opportunity to make their own decisions. 
Yeah, and talking about apologies, we in April we had the um, ending of the November 2015 policy. Ah, yes. And that's another example of, uh, you know how when you're walking along and you trip, mm-hmm. and then you like do this little jog to to like get back, and, and so so <laughs> so so everyone around you doesn't look at that trip like it was uh, a. A like it was a mistake, thing. yeah. But it was like, oh, it was just a just you just starting your jog. Uh-huh. I think that's what we do when we don't apologize. We're like, oops, I, we're just doing the right thing now, and we're not going to apologize. So yes, I agree, obviously, with the mm-hmm. fact that this policy needed to be gone, and I'm glad that it's gone. Yes, sir. But there was no apology. Mm-hmm. Um, numerous people uh, left the church in in those three and a half years, and mm-hmm. numerous people, unfortunately, died by suicide in that time Mm. and we have to we can't just skip over and pretend like that didn't happen Mm -hmm. uh and so uh, there's an apology there that i think would be very helpful and healing definitely definitely i can't think of any more news that i have i don't really have any more news either okay so i think it'd be this is actually a great segue into the come follow me lesson for this week and next week first thing i want to talk about from the upcoming lesson is Christ's teachings on forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the foundational pieces of Christian doctrine is that of forgiveness. Like, we learn about forgiveness in this particular instance. Um, this particular Come Follow Me lesson, this is where Christ says, forgive them for they know not what they do, addressing the Roman soldiers that mm-hmm. are crucifying him. But there's also other teachings of Christ, like when... He's asked how often he should forgive his brother. Christ responds, tri- Christ responds 70 times 7. Forgiveness is also imbued in the Lord's Prayer. Like, there, like forgiveness is a central piece of Christian doctrine. And we need to be very careful about mm-hmm. how we talk about forgiveness. I do believe these are correct and beautiful teachings on forgiveness. But I feel like we may, on occasion, uh, distort these particular teachings. Now... Again, we've already named these particular more popular instances of the Savior talking about forgiveness uh, in the Lord's Prayer, on the cross, and to his apostles. But the forgiveness deployed in the context of American race relations becomes a part of a ritual of racial forgiveness. Now, I thought about this very... um, I pondered this a lot simply because of all that has been happening this week with regard to reparations. And my mind immediately went to Dylan Roof and the killing of the Charleston Nine. Mm. Do you remember what happened during his indictment? Um, I'm not sure what you're talking about. Okay, I just want to point out one instance during uh, Roof's indictment that stood out to me very powerfully. Oh, was, was it when one of the people said, we've got to forgive Dylan? Okay. Yes, and several of them, actually, family members and loved ones of the people killed in the Charleston Nine, went up to that TV screen and looked at Dylan Roof and said, I forgive you. You know, that was a very powerful moment and something I know I would not be able to bring myself to do, to forgive somebody who in a racially motivated crime killed somebody that I loved. Like, that would be a very difficult thing for me to do. But something that has been stirring in my mind since then is what exactly is forgiveness in the context of racial restorative justice. And uh, this is what I was this is what I was thinking about. Um 
racial forgiveness, I feel like, is different than the theological premise of forgiveness. Um, it is a cultural ritual in, in which America functions to atone for the past of racism without actually addressing racism, if that makes any sense. Mm, mm-hmm. uh, there, there's been a lot of apologies from various predominantly white denominations for racism, but there's also been a forgetfulness and a failure to atone properly, uh, a failure to properly reconcile the history of racism with whatever has most recently happened. So that, that, that is what I was thinking about. These public acts of racial forgiveness, they're important, but they can also bring about a forgetfulness uh, when co-opted by individuals or groups who have very little knowledge or, sorry, very little interest in racial reconciliation. Uh, for example, um, so now when the forgiveness, when the arraignment ended for Dylan Roof, it wasn't too long after that that the forgetting already was happening. Jeb Bush, in some remarks, called it an attack against Christians. Do you remember that? Like how there was a big stink made about that? I remembered it, and I don't remember why exactly it bothered me so profoundly other than the utter disregard for the racial crime that this was, but this was Mm -hmm. part of it. I just watched all these uh, black people forgive Dylan Roof for killing their loved ones, and then Jeb Bush had the nerve to call it a crime against Christians. That's partially true, but there was already this ritual forgetting of what exactly yeah. was happening. Um, Jeb Bush called it an attack against Christians, and a lot of conservatives called that the shooting was an attack against Christians. Like, how long is forgiveness and the subsequent forgetting going to be a means to derail sustained efforts to confront racism in America? Like, for black people, there's no forgetting this stuff. You know, there's no mm-hmm. forgetting the history of American racism or the complicity of Christians in that history. You know, when a white man walks into a black church, sits for an hour, and then allegedly shoots nine black people dead, no amount of forgiveness given for this murderous act by mm-hmm. the families can absolve America of its violent history of racism, no matter how much those complicit in that racism might hope for it. So I'd really like to see, in addition to this forgiveness, a real concerted effort for reconciliation. Like, it's not just enough for black people to forgive uh, this history it's not enough for us to forgive slavery because even that part is easy. We can forgive slavery, but without the reconciliation and without an actual cease cessation of what is happening today uh, as a direct result of the legacy of slavery, forgiveness in that context can be severely misplaced. Right. That's all I wanted to say about that really. Yeah. I I think um, this, this, Forgiveness, can, like you said, can definitely be weaponized to put to uh, silence to silence people and to keep the abuse, the abusive situation ongoing. Yes, and I think that's very, very different than what Jesus is talking about when he's teaching forgiveness in all these contexts. Absolutely, because what he's trying to do is restore a relationship that was broken, mm-hmm. and what that involves is knowledge of, uh, about the whole situation. Um, and that, that's behind when he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what to do. The, the implication is if they actually knew what they were doing, they wouldn't have done it. Yes. So we need to actually know what, what's going on. And that's how we prevent it from happening. And you can't really have the whole piece there if you just paste on this, this artificial forgiveness without repentance or without mm-hmm. this underlying change of heart and, and mind to say, I'm not going to do the wrong thing anymore. Yeah. 
um, and and this restoration is really what what justice is about. Mm. And I, I want to get back to this idea of oh well, black people should just forget th- the past and move mm-hmm. on. Well, white people like look, the, going back to Trek. We still dress up like it's the 1800s, and we haven't Forget forgotten. About that. We, have we haven't <laughs> forgotten about what Lilburn W. Boggs did to us in Missouri. Yeah, like we're never going to forget that, mm-hmm. right? And we, uh, why do we get to uh, say, oh, well, we we we're going to celebrate this this thing and commemorate that, and then expect black people to get over stuff that is it's impossible? That, yeah. <laughs> It's still happening, and it's that's impossible to get over when when it when similar and equal equivalent things are happening today. Mm-hmm. So um, I just wanted to say one thing about crucifixion, and I'm going to bring in this is James's Cone James Cones's book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, which ah, is yes. actually uh, signed by James Cone. What? Yep, bruh. So yeah, so James Cone, for for those of you that might not know, is a uh, black liberation theologian, very influential uh, for decades, and his whole point was to connect um, the cross of Jesus with the lynching tree and say that you can't understand, really, you can't understand one without the other. Mm. Uh, not that they're the same. He doesn't say that they're literally the same, but he likens the scriptures unto himself as we would say in the latter-day saint tradition and talks about how um how politically the the cross in ancient uh, in ancient rome served the same purpose to intimidate to uh control a population to subjugate and dehumanize a population you know because you know roman citizens were not crucified if they were killed it was by beheading mm. crucifixion was reserved as a public um intimidating practice that you can entire intimidate an entire population of oppressed people occupied people by the example of of a few and um and that's just one of the things he get he brings in and uh i wanted to name that too that we have to uh to notice that um so in many ways the, the crucifixion really is a hate crime mm. it's an identity-based uh hate crime uh, that pilot, who I should say is a, a white person, he was he was from Italy, mm-hmm. um, executed on a brown person as uh, as as a as part of the his government authority. So we can't. There's no way of actually reading the historical crucifixion narrative in context. You've got a person of color who is unarmed, killed by someone who has quote legitimate um, government authority to do so. And washes his hands of the responsibility and say, "Nope, it, I'm. I don't. I don't. I'm not to blame for this," which is exactly what we're doing today, mm. um, with with so many killings of, of unarmed men of color and women of color by police. Mm-hmm. It's it, it's just you, there's no way of being a Christian and thinking about the cross, and then not seeing this when it's ha- when it happens in the form that it does today. Mm. Um. Yeah, and I I also wanted to talk about it. Um, yeah, I don't know if there's anything else before we talk about the resurrection. No. Um, I actually wanted to. I, I was hoping you'd have something to say about the resurrection as well because, um, you know, I had the same questions about resurrection that I had back when we listened to Pastor Jay talk during uh, that Easter service. 
about resurrection. He spent a lot of time talking about the significance of the resurrection to to the saints. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And um, I, I can't remember if this was a direct question that was asked in the actual lesson for Come Follow Me this week. But something that I think would be a good question to ask the saints is what significance does the resurrection have to us? Why is the fact that Jesus was resurrected significant and why were the events surrounding Mm -hmm. the resurrection uh, significant? So I I would really like to talk about that for a little bit. Yeah, and one thing is that the reality of the resurrection changes the way you live your life day to day, and it should, Mm -hmm. or it should change your choices because— just one example is what does it teach us about the dignity of bodies? The fact that we're going to get our bodies back means that there's something sacred and and powerful and important there. That when other uh, people are being killed, that I should remember, like, look, bodies are sacred. This is a, is a very significant injustice. Like we in our tradition believe that uh, Heavenly Father has a body. Um, a body of flesh and a tangible body of flesh and bone. So bodies are sacred, including sexuality is sacred too. It's not like we should ex- escape the sexuality that's that's part of being an embodied person, but no, that's something we should embrace. So the resurrection can change everything. It should change how you treat your body, how you treat other people's bodies, um, and how, yeah, I, I think it should change everything. But one thing I wanted to talk about is um, – so, Pastor Jay Williams. Um, yes, sir, Pastor Jay. Yeah, shout out to him. He d- he did a great job of oh, connecting such a great sermon the the resurrection with the coming out narratives of queer people mm. because people and it's not just about the coincidence of the word coming out. Yes, Jesus came out of the tomb. It's about a new identity, a new life. It's about um, being unconquerable after you have gone through the worst mm. and and over. And you have overcome it. Yes, sir. It can't do the same thing to you again. Mm-hmm. It's about defeating the closet just like Jesus defeated the tomb. Because once you've died and been uh, resurrected like Christ was, you will never die again. And it's the same thing. Once you've gone through the closet and come out, you will never go back in again if you mm-hmm. truly have. Uh, and so we need to um, not just come out of the closet. Uh, but come out of the quiet as well, mm. because a lot of LGBT people are now uh, now out, but living just a very normal life and not realizing that there's still work to be done, and, and we need to speak up on that. Mm-hmm. And I love how Paul, the apostle, talks about the cross. He says um, that the cross and the resurrection are so central to him, in part because he didn't know the Jesus of history in his mortal life. Um, he only knew Jesus in the vision that he saw on the road to Damascus. Mm. But just knowing the, the cross, how, how our life as Christians is very cross-shaped, that we take on these tremendous evils and go through them, not avoiding them, but, but we suffer through them and then we overcome them by realizing that they did not actually defeat us. That is a lesson that that queer people and perhaps everyone else can learn as well. Mm. So resurrection. Um, I also wanted to talk about, um, let's see, there were were a lot of good things. We're on, this is still in this lesson, but I wanted to talk about, I wanted to talk briefly about the road to Emmaus. I Mm -hmm. think we've already discussed Mm -hmm. the road to Emmaus in 
you know, a previous episode, but it's worth mentioning again here, uh, just with a couple of different questions. I, I postulate, well, one, one thing they wanted to make sure that we got out of this in the lesson was that, you know, the, the, the disciples that Jesus was walking with on the road to Emmaus did not immediately recognize who he was. Right. And that's like a big, a big thing about this story, that Jesus encounters these disciples of his on the road to Emmaus. They don't know who he is, but they do feel something. They are, and um, they invite him to abide with them. And it's only then when they sit at him, sit with him, uh, and break bread together that they know who he is, and then he vanishes out of sight. Now, the, the, the different thing I wanted to acknowledge here was that I think they didn't know who he was because they didn't exercise sufficient faith in the promise that he would return, that he would be resurrected. And I may have said this last time, but um, I was thinking specifically about how often we miss opportunities or we miss certain things that happen in our lives, perhaps promptings, because we do not exercise faith in the promises of Christ. And that's mm. something that really stood out to me. I was talking just last night with a friend about this, about how I live a significantly better life when I have the faith in Christ's promises to know that my life is going to be okay, even though I don't necessarily know what the future looks like. Mm -hmm. Now, Jesus is quick to point out when he finds his disciples on the road to Emmaus, he asks, why are you sad? You know, that's the first thing he asks them. Why are you sad? He knows exactly why they're sad. Like, they're sad because Jesus is dead, you know? But they've forgotten that Jesus is going to come back after three days, and Jesus reprimands them almost immediately. You know, after they talk mm -hmm. to him about why they're sad, Jesus is like, do you not remember the words of the prophets? Do you not remember the promises? And then he expounds all things to them, at which point you know these disciples are feeling better because as soon as Jesus makes as if he would go further, the disciples are like, no, come hang out with us for a little bit. We'd love to have you for dinner or something like mm -hmm. that, you know? They, they, they know something by this point about whoever this is that is that is abiding with them. So I just wanted to highlight this fact and uh, hopefully implore any listeners that if you are going through a tough time right now and you still believe in Christ, I want everybody to remember this story. If we remember the promises of Jesus Christ, that can really not only make us better people, it can not only make us a more positive people with a better eternal perspective, but it can also help us to see opportunities and acknowledge promptings mm -hmm. and see miracles as they're still happening in our lives. These things are happening all the time to us. I really believe that. And we are not as privy to those things if we are not taking faith in the promises of the prophets and the promises of Christ himself. That's all I wanted to highlight. Yeah. And, you know, there's uh, there's uh, what I want to also is liken this unto um, – Again, like a coming out story, because Jesus, mm. in a in a sense, has been like many queer people who you've known all your life and didn't realize they were queer. Yeah, something flips, and then you see them as they truly are. That's like what the disciples on the road to Emmaus—they were walking with Je this this Jesus, but they didn't truly know him until they put all the pieces together, until their hearts burned within them, and until they looked at the scriptures with fresh eyes and an interpretation that was that was given to them by someone who knows what's going on because it happened to them, Jesus, right? Mm -hmm. and that's what happens. I think people, as people, 
look at the scriptures, look at the words of even living prophets today with new eyes, with fresh eyes, in light of the person, uh, in light of the queer person that they're encountering, they will they will come to a change of heart, and it will it will be marvelous and miraculous. All those people who who say the church can't change, well, first of all, they they haven't done a, even a two minutes of church history. <laughs> um, almost every back. major doctrine has been modified or adapted in some way between 1830 and now. Mm-hmm. And that's not even counting over thousands of years where no. we've got... Um, now, so obviously, in some sense, eternal truth can't change, but the presentation, how do we formulate this truth? How do we teach it? How do we present it? That what is always changing. Us, yeah. And that's the whole point of having living prophets, and that's why I'm glad to be part of a church that does have living prophets. Uh, we need to live into that birthright and um, not sell it for something less. And uh, because we have the ability to go and get breakthrough revelations, and our people haven't uh, lived up to that heritage yet uh, on the LGBT issue. Mm. Uh, but yeah, I think, I think we can live into that. And as we uh, look at the scriptures with fresh eyes, we will be able to see walking with us all along yeah. have been queer people. The other thing, there's two more things, if we can just briefly touch on these that I really wanted to talk about. Uh, that is the Lord's instruction to Peter to feed his sheep. And the other one is the um, is when Peter gently rebukes Thomas with, Blessed are they who have not seen and yet believe. Now, the the question that I really liked in this lesson with regard to feeding sheep is what could potentially be stopping people from feeding Christ's sheep. Christ, before he instructs to feed his sheep, he asks Peter if he lo- if Peter loves him, to which Peter replies, Yea, Lord. And this happens two more times. And each time Jesus instructs Peter to feed his sheep. Now, I've pondered this a lot. And my immediate reaction to the question, what is stopping you from feeding his sheep, is perhaps not enough love for Jesus Christ, not enough appreciation for mm-hmm. the atonement. And, you know, that's, I mean, that's what my instinct is telling me. I, I, re- I remember when I was on my mission, there was one particular time I felt a strong prompting to talk to somebody and I didn't do it because I was embarrassed. Like, it's just random for this foreigner to come up to you and talk to you, try to talk to you about Jesus. And, you know, I, I can say I probably did not love Jesus as much as I should have in that moment. Else, what would I care what somebody else thinks of me? Like, really, it all comes back to the first and great commandment when it comes to feeding the Lord's sheep. Do we love him with all of our heart, might, mind, and soul? And do we love our neighbors as we love ourselves? If so, why would we not want to share the gospel with them? Why would we not want to make sure that they have the things they need? Why would we not want to take in the refuge? Take in the refugee, take in the sick, the afflicted, the poor. Like that is our responsibility as Christians, not just because the Lord commanded it, but because that is what it means to love as Christ would love. And that is ultimately our destiny as Christians is to become like Christ in that aspect. So many other aspects, but especially in how we treat other people. So I am comfortable saying that what would stop me from feeding the Lord's sheep is perhaps 
I don't love the Lord as much as I ought to. Mm-hmm. And I don't feel like anybody ought to say they love the Lord while they continue engaging in dispossessive behavior of their fellow man. Right. And and I would like to 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 to, to go forward with that on this idea of if you're going to actually feed sheep, you need to know what you're doing. Right? Mm. Because a lot of people, I hear this all the time, like, "Oh, we love the gays." <laughs> <laughs> and that love has been completely separated from a sense of knowledge and understanding of what helps us thrive and what what makes us tick and all this. What it is is and I and I believe them. They have this affection for us that mm-hmm. is centered in their view of themselves. Like, oh, I'm a good person. I love gay people. But it's like suppose that you're allergic to peanuts and I I love you and I make you a peanut butter sandwich and I feed it to you. That's there's a, there's a problem here because love can't be separated from knowledge. Like if I truly love you, I would know what hurts you mm-hmm. and what makes you thrive. Mm-hmm. And I would choose not to give, even though if maybe I like peanut butter and out of an expression of how much I like it, that I want you to have it too. Mm-hmm. That's not love. If it's, if it's separated from knowledge, it's not love. And mm-hmm. I think there's a great deal of affection uh, for, for, uh, queer people in the LDS world, especially for young gay white men, because mm-hmm. um, we're the, you know, we have all the other privileges, and so we're the most easily storyable, <laughs> you know, we can make this <laughs> make this really compelling, dramatic story about, oh, this guy could have been a GA if only he'd not been gay. Derek's face just contorted in a way that I've never seen when oh. you said that word, storyable. Like, storyable. I, I'm Derek trying to make up words. For it. <laughs> I, I make I'm 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 I like making up words, mm. so yeah. But my point is that there's this there's this now because there used to be this disgust for mm. gay people. Now it has modified to this what they call love, but is still completely separated from any actual knowledge of us. And I once re- wrote an essay on homo domestication, uh, and yes. it's this idea that. Um, homophobia has evolved mm. and it has mutated and adapted to oh now we love you but it's not it's not the love of an equal it's still the way you would love uh, a beloved pet like yeah. oh they're kind of part of the family and they're cute and they do ch- cool tricks but if they try to get on the table like a human they're going to be put in their place mm. and that's not love it's benevolent uh, homophobia it is it is, and I think we're gonna we're gonna have that in this church for a, for a decade at least, or two, or I don't know how many, but we're gonna we're gonna live with that for a while because there's this new new twist on this, and there's there's a lot of people who realize that this old homophobia, the one that was just ew, that's disgusting and repulsive, and I don't want that that's not gonna fly anymore, mm-hmm. and so it has evolved to be um, still quite problematic. Because what it does is it keeps us in our place. Mm. It says you do not deserve to have companionship. You do not deserve to have leadership in the church. You do not deser- deserve to have your voice heard. You can s- you will give you s- crumbs from our table, but that's it. And to call that love is the m- most satanic thing in the world. Mm. Because Satan appears as an angel of light. Satan wants to uh, deceive people. Right, you know, Satan isn't out, out there being obviously wicked. If 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 Satan were all just about obvious wickedness, he wouldn't have much of a job because mm-hmm. 
that doesn't really fool people. It's not a good job. Because, but fooling people whose hearts are in the right place is something that Jesus, uh, that Satan is very good at, mm. and that Jesus wants to call us to repentance around. Mm. Um, I'm reminded of of uh, you know MLK. You know, white people love to quote MLK. So sorry about that. <laughs> but MLK said that. We're, we're not going to remember the words of our enemies. We're, we're going to remember the silence, the silence of, of our, our friends, friends. right? Yeah. And I think in the, in the LDS church right now, we don't have all these people with, with obvious and gross, you know, like we don't see people uh, uh, from the pulpit calling us homos and fags and all these other things. We don't see that. Mm-hmm. We see that in some other churches, but not in our church. What we have is, oh, we love you, and you have a place here, but without specifying what that love is or what that place what that looks place like. Is, yeah. We've got this. Um, what we've got is the silence of our friends, and I and I see this it, even here in the Boston area. Mm. There are a lot of good people who don't know what to say, and their heart might be in the right place, but they are silent when I need them to speak out. Mm. And I need them to say the things that I can't say because I would get pushed back or I would get in trouble for. I need to 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 navigate this uh, navigate my place and I, there's things that i just can't say and retain my relationships mm-hmm. and that's where where accomplices should step up and say look this is not right we've got to stop this um why isn't someone saying stop this um and that's uh we're going to remember the silence of our friends mm. and that's all i have cool i just realized that uh, most of what I had to say about um, about Thomas's gentle rebuke from the Savior, I probably already said when it came down to the story about the disciples and the road to mm-hmm. Emmaus. So do you have anything you would like to say about this? Because the question that I was pondering, that I spent some time pondering, mm-hmm. was uh, this question of how have we been blessed for believing in spiritual things we could not see? And what helps you have faith in the Savior when you can't see him, like in the darkest days, I suppose? Maybe if you could say a couple of words yeah, to, to get the ball rolling. something about what Jesus said to Thomas, you know, blessed are those who um, have not, who, uh, you know, those who do not see and yet still believe. Because yes. what, he, what John is, the Gospel of John is doing is talking to a Christian community where Jesus is no longer physically present on the earth. Mm-hmm. And, um, and some... Uh, there are still some traditions from people who were were eyewitnesses, but most people who read John's gospel are not going to have that witness. And there, and so what does that tell us about Jesus who was here on the earth ministering to us, embodying God's love, and then was taken away? Like, why didn't Jesus just stay here and chill for 2,000 years <laughs> among us? And I think the reason is that Jesus was taken away so that he could get out of the way so that he could become the way. And by that I mean... Oh, shoot. That's a bar. What? Put the timestamp on that. I got to remember that. Uh, okay. That is a whole bar, Derek. All right. Sorry. Keep going. Because what that means is, like, Jesus going away... Because if Jesus stayed here, we would just group around him and not actually do Jesus' work. Jesus' way is to embody Jesus and to carry on the tradition and go after the least and the last and the lost. Hmm. And if Jesus were still here, we probably wouldn't do that very well. At least not for the right reasons anyway. Right. But now that Jesus is taken out of the way, the only Jesus I see is the Jesus 
in the poor person or the mm. person of color or the person who needs me or the immigrant or the stranger or the mm. queer person. So Jesus on the last day is not going to be able to say, Derek, hey, like, how would you have treated me if I were there? Because he will know. How I treated the least of these, according to Matthew 25, yes. is how I treated Jesus. So I don't need Jesus to be physically here to believe in him and to serve in him and to serve him and to love him. Mm. Like Jesus is the way he showed us the way and he, he stepped out of the way so that we could live into the way without him here. Mm. And that's kind of where I would go with Thomas's. Yes, Derek. Yes. I love that, man. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I can't really add to that because I think that is just an incredible thing. Th those are already incredible words and I don't want to taint them with my thoughts and I don't have that great of thoughts on this anyway, but I'm glad we at least got to discuss those questions. Now, normally next section or do you have anything else you want? Okay, cool. No. Nope. So I don't really, I, I told you before the show that Mitch McConnell was probably going to be my prayer role, but we've already talked about that and I don't think anything else needs to be said. You guys know exactly why I would have put Mitch McConnell on the prayer role and Ta-Nehisi Coates already did a better job of right. putting that man in this place than I could ever do. So I am just going to effectively pass my prayer role call to Ta-Nehisi Coates and uh, if you guys haven't read that transcript of that hearing, I highly mm -hmm. encourage you guys to do so. It is just four minutes and 33 seconds of pure intelligence. It's wonderful. So um, take the time to check that out if you haven't. I think the transcript is already online if you guys don't want to watch it. Yeah, I don't, I don't have anyone for the prayer roll this week either. Cool. Then <laughs> at one hour, 18 minutes, we'll go ahead and uh, close this week's episode of beyond the block thank you guys for joining us we shall see you next week yeah see you next week remember black is beautiful gay is good and christ is lord yes bye <laughs>